the fundamental chemistry is actually really simple. You take THC, it's got this reactive part of the molecule called a phenol. You use electricity to do an oxidation reaction. It gives a different product that's a different color. This is Parsing Science, the unpublished stories behind the world's most compelling science, as told by the researchers themselves. I'm Ryan Watkins. And I'm Doug Lay. Today, in episode 79 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Neil Garg from the University of California, Los Angeles, about his research into the electrochemistry behind his creation of a small electronic test of marijuana that works by way of a simple oxidation process similar to that used in alcohol breathalyzers. Here's Neil Garg. Hi, I'm Neil Garg. I'm a professor at UCLA. I'm also the current department chair for the Department of Chemistry and Biochemistry. I grew up in a small town in New York State called Fishkill, and Fishkill is probably about uh, 70, 80 miles north of New York City. I did okay in school, and I did well enough that I was really encouraged at the time to go into the sciences, maybe down the pre-med track. So I applied to different schools and ultimately decided to go to NYU in New York City, And I wasn't initially thinking I would go anywhere too close to home, but the funny thing, I wasn't even planning to apply there. I actually went to see a REM concert, you know, this old band REM. I went to see them with a friend and he wanted to check out NYU. So we checked out NYU while we were down in the city. Um, And lo and behold, he didn't end up going to NYU and I did as, (laughs) as it goes. And I did really well in chemistry though. You know, when you're a pre-med, you start getting this type of advice of, um, you know, do I need to do research? Do I need to do volunteer work? So I started to dabble with both of them, and I really got into the the chemical research. And so that turned out to be really important for me because I had a great experience. I developed a great relationship with a professor, and I also then got into becoming a teaching assistant. So I did that for about three years for general chemistry. And along the way, I, uh, you know, made the switch. I decided that, you know, pre-med really wasn't what I was passionate about, and I really enjoyed chemistry, and I was good enough at it, that it seemed like I should pursue graduate school. So I applied to grad schools. Uh, I was incredibly fortunate. I got into Caltech. So I went there for five years to do my PhD in organic chemistry. And then I spent two years at the University of California, Irvine, doing postdoc studies. And then in 2007, I got a job at UCLA. And so I've been at UCLA now for uh, a while, (laughs) I think almost um, uh, 13 full years and a couple of weeks. And it's really been a special place. So I have a research lab, an organic chemistry-focused research lab. Uh, I teach classes, and as I mentioned, I'm the department chair. Neil's research lab primarily works on synthesizing complex bioactive molecules. That is, they create synthetic molecules based on natural molecules. As doing fundamental research using electrochemical processes was something of a departure from their prior work, Doug and I asked how this project got its start. I was at this, you know, I'll call it a family camp thing that UCLA has. It's called Bruin Woods. And I was a faculty lecturer and I gave a couple of uh, broad spectrum uh, lectures explaining a little bit about organic chemistry. And I talked about the alcohol breathalyzer. And somebody was there. He was an alumnus of UCLA and he was an attorney. And he said, Neil, you know, one of these things that's becoming incredibly important and will become more and more important in the future is uh, impairment related to marijuana and the laws and, you know, things like that. And do you know anything about the marijuana breathalyzer? So I came back and started to dig into this and I engaged a, you know, absolutely awesome postdoc in my lab named Evan Darcy. And we started to come up with different ideas for how we would think about this problem. And we had all these, I'd say, rather exotic ideas. 
And it was just really clear if you wanted to work on this problem, you had to come up with something that was really simple. And the way alcohol breathalyzers work are primarily using electrochemistry. So you blow into this device, an electrochemical reaction occurs. It's an oxidation reaction. And when that reaction occurs, this thing generates some electrical current, and that current can be monitored. That sort of technology is cheap. The fundamentals already exist. You don't need, I think, wildly sophisticated equipment. So if you're thinking about a marijuana breathalyzer, we just thought it'd be really cool if you could you know, learn what we have about the alcohol breathalyzer and start to apply it. And so what we did then is we need to get our hands on THC, how we got THC, keeping in mind federal laws. But once we got it, um, we went to town trying to figure out, and this is mostly Evan doing this experimentally, is figuring out how to use electrochemistry. So this is using electricity to do an oxidation of THC. And um, when you do that, could you be then thinking about a reaction occurring that you can then detect? And so to make a long story short, that's what we have figured out how to do. And THC, of course, is important because that is the primary psychoactive ingredient in marijuana. So that is really sort of the, uh, the, the compound that people are usually trying to detect when you're thinking about a marijuana breathalyzer. Over the last 20 years, Americans have become increasingly supportive of legalizing marijuana. Today, in 10 states and the District of Columbia, the plant is fully legal for medicinal and recreational use. And in another 22 states, it's legal for medicinal use. But marijuana can also impair judgment, especially when driving. And so a marijuana breathalyzer could enhance roadway safety. But just how widespread is driving while under the influence of marijuana anyway? 4.6% of the population in the US, which is about 12 million people, reported driving under the influence of marijuana in the past year, right? And so that's (laughs) self-reporting, right? Absolutely stunning, right? 4.6% of the population, 12 million individual people said that they have smoked pot and then driven a car. Huge numbers. And, And so let's assume that the real number is higher than that. And then you apply that across the world. Look, I grew up in a, in a small town in, in New York at a time when this stuff wasn't uh, legal, it wasn't decriminalized, then yeah, people smoke pot and they drove cars. And you know people still do it here uh, in Los Angeles. And I'd be surprised if there's anywhere in the country where that's not still happening. And so to me, it's really never been a question of if it's happening or that it leads to impairment. I think those are all things we know. I think the question is really just how do you keep the road safe? And I don't want to be the one, uh, you know, cracking down law on with like, you know, law enforcement. It's not really my uh, objective to punish individuals. That's why I'd really like to, you know, come up with something affordable and somehow find ways to keep the road safe. Certainly the first step in a breathalyzer would be yes or no, has somebody been smoking pot? And that should be a good indication. You know, it should be something that gives a pretty good and reliable indication when that technology is there. The next step that's, I think, a very interesting and complicated one is correlating that to the level of how much somebody has smoked, how much THC is on their breath, and then how impaired they are. You know, that is another layer. And and, and by the way, none of that is figured out. (laughs) You know, there's no uh, guidelines for this, I think, anywhere, you know, where people have correlated the amount of THC on your breath to how impaired you are. So there, that's another huge area of investigation. And I think it'll take a few years. It'll take years for people to figure that out. Tetrahydrocannabinol, or THC, is the chemical responsible for most of marijuana's psychological effects. 
However, its chemical structure can make THC hard to detect after consumption. Doug and I wanted to hear more about how Neil and his postdoc, Evan, approached the challenge of doing so. It's actually completely analogous to an alcohol breathalyzer. An alcohol breathalyzer looks for an alcohol, that's one of these OH groups, <laughs> as we call it, use electricity to oxidize it, detect a signal. So we just did that by design, but it's, a, it's the exact same concept, even from the reactivity standpoint. So what we do is we take THC and... Yeah, you know, it depends who all is listening out there, but if you're an organic chemist, uh, I can start there. It has a phenol on it. So that's an aromatic ring with an alcohol group on it, an OH group. And we recognize that generally, if you move away from THC, phenols can be oxidized into things called quinones. And so we wondered, could you take this molecule THC and just focus on this part that's a phenol? And can you oxidize that phenol to make a quinone? If you could do this on THC, when you do that reaction, how do you know if it worked? What do you look for if you're developing a breathalyzer? And what's cool is that basically when you have THC, let's just say it's, a, it's colorless, when you do this oxidation reaction, what we were hoping is that would, it would, the product you would get would be a different color. And uh, that's in fact what you see is that the product we get, it's called a quinone, THC quinone, and that absorbs light at a different wavelength, and therefore that product is a different color. So that was really exciting because then, you know, you know that, okay, you can pump electricity into THC, THC undergoes a reaction, and you look for a color change, right? Pretty cool. You know whether or not you have THC. But there's other versions of this that one could develop where you basically put THC into, uh, let's just call it a cell, a fuel cell or something like that, and then you look for a current being generated. So that's the scoop for how this works. And there are different ways that one could think about turning that into technology, but the fundamental chemistry is actually really simple. You take THC, it's got this reactive part of the molecule called a phenol, you use electricity to do an oxidation reaction, it gives a different product that's a different color. And it takes some amount of electricity in order to do that. And because of that, there's a lot of different ways you could think about developing like a sensor device around it um, in terms of the more advanced technology, how you, how you take that forward from like something in the lab to like a, a breathalyzer device you'd have on the street. There's, a, there's just a lot of flexibility or a lot of opportunity in terms of the specifics that one pursues. For Ryan in Washington, D.C., legal marijuana is about as commonplace as is taxation without representation. And for me, here in Los Angeles, given the 600 storefronts and 250 delivery services for it in the state, buying marijuana is about as easy as buying a bottle of Napa Valley wine. In all, there are currently about 7,500 legal marijuana dealers across the United States, but purchasing pure, lab-grade THC isn't quite as convenient as it is at the local dispensary, as Neil describes after this short break. This episode is brought to you by Altmetric. At Altmetric, we help researchers track and analyze the online activity around scholarly research outputs. And if you like passing science, you may also enjoy our podcast series, The Altmetric Podcast. Join me, Lucy Goodchild, as we explore the science stories that are being discussed the most online so you can find out why. You can find our show on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Now, back to passing science. Here again is UCLA's Neil Garg. You know, researchers will order chemicals from a company like Sigma Aldridge. So if you're getting into this and you haven't done this sort of thing before, you'd go to the Sigma Aldridge website and you'd look for Delta 9 THC. That's the you know, more specific name, and you'll find it in there. So then you go and you try to place an order, thing looks good, and then you get a notice saying, where's your 
DEA license. So although it's legal here in California, marijuana, it's still federally illegal. And marijuana, THC, I guess I should say specifically THC, the chemical, is uh, considered Schedule 1. Even though it shows up in chemical catalogs, those chemical suppliers are not allowed to sell it to anybody unless they have a Schedule 1 DEA license. It's a funny problem because there are all these places that have marijuana available, including right here near UCLA and Westwood. You could say, hey, why don't you just go down there and buy some of these with our expertise, right? We could buy almost anything in these shops, extract out the THC, purify it, and have plenty of pure THC for that we would need for experimentations. But experimentation, the problem is when you're thinking about doing research on that, that is not going by the government process that's expected. You know, so if you want to do research properly, and you know, of course, we're in a public institution, we take these things very seriously at UCLA. The proper way you have to do that is to get approved for a Schedule One license. And to make a long story short, for better or for worse, I think probably for better, they don't make that an easy process. It's a lot of paperwork with the federal government at first, some paperwork with the California government, and then you need some lock boxes to store the THC in so nobody else can get it. It's like a double lock box with uh, two keys. So I have I keep those keys on me at all times. And that all then has to be inspected, you know, in-person inspection. So it actually took, I don't know, nine months to a year just to have the ability to buy THC. Although chemical-based approaches for the oxidation of phenols into quinones is well-known, the corresponding transformation using electrochemistry isn't yet well-developed. It was only through a failed experiment in 2003 that a team of European researchers stumbled upon a procedure for oxidizing phenols into quinones using electrochemistry. So we asked Neil to explain more about how he and the study's lead author, Evan Darcy, went about carrying out experiments which eventually resulted in a workable oxidation setup. So what we did is we took these conditions that people had used on simpler molecules and tried to use them on THC. And basically trying to do that didn't work very well. And so what we ended up having to do, you know, when you develop an electrochemical reaction, there are a lot of things you have to look at in terms of the what we call the reaction parameters, how much voltage is being used. You know, things like that one has to check. Anytime you have electrochemistry, you have these things called electrodes. What it looks like, it's kind of like if you had a little uh, a glass of water or something like that. It'd be like you had two pencils sitting in that glass of water. These things are called the electrodes, and that's really important. And so you can buy different types of electrodes, so we had to play with those. So we basically just tuned these different types of um, parameters as best we could. Dr. Evan Darzi, a postdoc in my lab, he just went to town on this looking at different reaction conditions until he could identify conditions that made THC undergo this electrochemical oxidation. So it's like a huge amount of work that goes into this for the experimentalist. But ultimately, basically, there was something in the literature that looked really promising. It would have been nice if these reaction conditions that I worked on something really simple applied to Delta-9 THC. It didn't quite work out like that. And so uh, Evan did what he can by manipulating different experimental parameters until he got the the reaction to work. So we did a lot of experiments on simpler molecules because it's hard to get THC and expensive. And we did a lot of experiments overall. So uh, yeah, I think actually the initial draft of the manuscript said hundreds, but um, I didn't want a reviewer to ask us to tabulate the results of hundreds of experiments. So we changed it to many 
<laughs> That's how reviewers are. Hey, hundreds of experiments. Let's see all the results. And yeah, it didn't seem uh, worth putting in that type of language. Because if you do hundreds of experiments, some of those things are things that are you know what we call screening. You just, hey, okay, I'm going to try one volt, two volt, three volt, five volts, whatever. You know, you can change different parameters kind of randomly and just, you know, or I should call it systematically, maybe with a hypothesis in mind, right? But other things you, you really design and you're pretty careful and deliberate about what you do. So if you're thinking about hundreds of experiments, it can be a lot of work and a, a huge amount of thought that goes into that and also interpreting the data you get. Unlike tests that rely on single-use chemical reagents, Neil's novel electrochemical approach, like that used in alcohol breathalyzers, allows for repeated use. So Ryan and I were interested in learning more about what was involved in verifying that it was possible to oxidize THC in the first place. All we need to do, right, in our minds when we're doing the study is we need to take THC, right, it has this thing, a phenol on it, we need to oxidize it, and it'll give a quinone. And hopefully that quinone will be a different color, right? How you do that oxidation reaction, in principle, could be done with chemical reagents or it could be done with electricity. And so what we did first, because we didn't, you know, we didn't have a ton of experience with electrochemistry, is we said, why don't we just figure out how to do it chemically and make sure that this quinone that you form is a different color? Because we, we didn't know that, whether or not that would be the case. So basically, we thought if we could do this with chemicals before electrochemistry, that would give us a quick validation of the idea. And it turns out there are different chemicals that one can use to oxidize phenols. And one of those chemicals is called PIFA. And so this reaction you see in our paper, that's uh, the non-electrochemistry version of this reaction. Instead, it's using a chemical reagent. So what we're doing there is we're taking pure THC, we're putting it in solvent, and you can ignore the details. It's basically water and a small amount of organic solvent as well. And that's just a room temperature. And then what we do is we add this chemical that we buy from a bottle called PIFA, and we wait 30 minutes, and you get the THC quinone that we want. And that allowed us very quickly, just within a day or two, to know that, yes, you can take THC. It can oxidize. And when it oxidizes, it gives THC quinone. And that THC quinone is a different color. So really important first proof of principle. And once we knew that, then we could go into, okay, instead of using PIFA, let's do this with electricity. So that's ultimately what we did, right? Is that we validated, yes, you can do this oxidation reaction. We did it with chemical-based reagents. If you're thinking about turning that into like a real device, that's suboptimal to be able to have to do these reactions with real reagents like that, much rather use electricity. So that's when we moved over to uh, electrochemistry, leading to this results you see that are like 67% yield. Because they produce false positives about 10% of the time, roadside alcohol breathalyzers aren't reliable enough to be admissible as evidence in court. Instead, testing on another, larger device at the police station is required. Since the precision of a marijuana breathalyzer might make the difference between being arrested for driving under the influence or not, we were interested in Neil's thoughts on the importance of false positive rates and the future market potential for a device based on his research. The false positive issue is one of the most common problems with developing this type of technology. That really comes down to, okay, now that we know that this electrochemical oxidation works, we have, I think, the impetus to move forward to try to look at things like, so can you now analyze vapor? What other things are 
in that vapor that could lead to a false positive? All of those are questions that will, or basically the next generation of what this chemistry will involve. One thing that's promising, though, is that most molecules have some unique you know, window of how prone they are to undergo oxidation. We call these things like oxidation potential, reduction potential, or the types of things that chemists will talk about. And so there's uh, basically some propensity of this molecule to undergo oxidation. And it's, we hope, the case that other molecules that might be in a sample might have different oxidation potentials and similarly not give off the same UV vis signal that we see. But you're right, we need to do more studies on this to look for other molecules that could be present in a given sample to avoid things like false positives. Much like an alcohol breathalyzer, you can get a false positive. Swish some alcohol around in your mouth, it'll light up a breathalyzer. <laughs> so um, a false positive, as long as it you know keeps the road safe, um, isn't handled in an unproductive in a rude way, if it was, you know, by law enforcement and allowed for proper follow-up before there was any real legal consequences, I think would be really important. I think any device that's developed could have the possibility of false positives. One can test for things that are likely known possibilities, but there's always then the possibility of the unknown. You know, if somebody now has something else on their breath that wasn't um, expected before that gives a false positive. So as long as there are other ways like blood testing that allows one to do a more foolproof um, analysis, I think then, you know, we, we want to do our best to minimize false positives. But, you know, for this specific way we're doing it, I, I think we need to, to do more before we can know how big of a problem the false positives are. In Thomas Edison's quest to invent the light bulb, he first experimented with carbon filaments and then platinum before finally settling on bamboo as the light bulb's initial filament. But today, we use tungsten in incandescent bulbs. Similarly, after experimenting with carbon, platinum, and glassy carbon, Neil and Evan found electrodes capable of producing a THC quinone yield of 67%. So we asked Neil to describe what this trial and error process was like as well as whether he might have plans for further tweaking the efficacy of their approach. It turns out it really depends on how you build the device, how important that 67% yield is. And it depends what the application is. So for us, we basically just have THC, right? And if you were to dig through this experimental, we're putting some amount in, say it's like 10 milligrams. That's way more than is going to be on somebody's breath, we would, we would hope. <laughs> and so what we're doing is then we're, we're doing this electrochemical oxidation until all of the THC is gone. And again, that's a lot of THC. And that yield we're reporting is of that product, what we call THC quinone. So for us, that's kind of how we would do organic chemistry in the lab. But it depends what your application is, because you can imagine um, you know, the way an alcohol breathalyzer works. It wouldn't be quite the same. You know, It would be about blowing into a sample and then seeing how much electricity it took, not measuring the amount of product. So I, I think to me, it really depends on how you build the device. But I guess we thought that that 67% yield was plenty encouraging for what it is. And there's two electrodes, one's based out of a carbon, the other's based out of platinum. And the fact that one of them is a carbon, of course, helps keep costs very low. So what we do is we buy little bottles of THC they may have like 25 milligrams of THC in them from a chemical supplier with our DEA license. And then we weigh out that THC. We put it into a little vial. Okay. So this is like, uh, imagine just a glass of water, but smaller. Okay. And then uh, we have a device, and we talk about this in the article called Electrosyn, and that's made by a company called ICA. 
And what they do is they have the setup with these electrodes on it already. So it just allows you to take these tiny electrodes and put them straight into the vial. And then the machine takes care of the voltage and the current for you. And you can play with some of these parameters. So that's our experimental setup. We are just using pure THC. We have it in solution. We stick these two little things. They look like sticks in them. Those are the electrodes. And we tell this little machine what to do. And, and that was what we viewed as our first milestone, because if you can't do that, there's no point in trying to figure out how to do this with breath or vapor. And so that's the next direction I think this technology needs to go in is for one to move from this, you know, what I call a laboratory setup into uh, the realm of um, really moving into things like breath testing. So you, you can imagine, I mean, right now, research at UCLA is let's just call it a suspended or beginning to ramp up due to COVID-19. But you can imagine things like that are on our mind for future directions once we figure out the proper way to do such things within the bounds of what we are allowed to do. In preparing for our interview, Doug and I visited Neil's UCLA lab website and couldn't help but noticing from its photo gallery that he and his team seem like they know how to have a good time, even during the coronavirus pandemic. So we wrapped up by asking him to tell us about what it's like working in his lab. Nature, whether it be in plants or in marine organisms, nature is making all these beautiful molecules, many of which have exciting or promising biological activity. Somebody will go out, find these molecules in nature, do extractions and purifications, and they'll figure out what the chemical structures are for such molecules. And then my lab will go into the lab and we'll figure out how to make them from uh, very simple things. So that is a big component of what we do. It can lead to biological consequences or medicinal consequences, but most often it's really a wonderful intellectual exercise that, that really pushes the limits of what we as chemists can make and improves our efficiency in being able to, uh, to make extraordinarily complicated structures. And it's important that we get really good at that because most molecules or most, I should say, drugs that are on the market are made by and can only be made by organic chemistry. So we try to innovate as much as we can in that space of these types of organic molecules, knowing that there are you know, both fundamental applications at times, um, as well as many possible applications. And you know, we have other, I'd say, more specialized projects like THC detection. We have a collaboration in Alzheimer's therapeutics. So we actually dabble in quite a few different areas these days, <laughs> and uh, we have a really great time doing it. That was Neil Gard discussing his article, Electrochemical Oxidation of Delta-9 Tetracannabinoil, a Simple Strategy for Marijuana Detection, which he published with Evan Darcy on April 24, 2020, in the American Chemical Society's journal, Organic Letters. You'll find a link to their paper at parsingscience.org e79 along with transcripts, bonus audio clips, and other materials that we discussed during the episode. We often hear from listeners curious about how Doug and I put the show together, so we collected the most frequently asked questions and posted our answers at parsingscience.org FAQ. There you'll find our origin story and how to cite the episodes in your own science writing. You can also learn who we have scheduled for upcoming episodes, how to have us ask a question of them on your behalf, what other shows we recommend, and more. Next time, in episode 80 of Parsing Science, we'll talk with Jordan Terrio from Northeastern University about his research into a set of brain regions that, activated by a variety of social tasks, can give us insight into how we judge the moral objectivity or subjectivity of unexpected claims by others. The association we're seeing between these fact-like and preference-like statements in this theory of mind network activity 
is something more to do with the predictability of the statements and less to do with the fact that they just happen to be objective or subjective. We hope that you'll join us again.